The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Father, we just thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together as a body of believers to be encouraged and strengthened by your word, that it is your word that is the means by which you sanctify us under the teaching ministry, filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray now that as we look at your word that we would be challenged, encouraged by it, that we would be willing to accept the challenge to advance to spiritual maturity to apply your word in our life, that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to begin in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9. We're continuing in our study of the angelic conflict as a background to our study of 1 John 2, 14 and 15, where the Adolescent believers are encouraged, the young men are encouraged, because they have overcome the evil one. In that verse, it says you are strong, the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. And the word there is Nike, from which we get a, uh English, we think an English word that you wear on your tennis shoes called Nike, meaning victory over the evil one. And then in 1 John 2.15, we are told that um, we are not to be not to love the world or the things in the world. Now, the backdrop to those two verses is understanding the angelic conflict. If you don't understand the angelic conflict, you won't really grasp what John is saying in those verses. So we are studying the angelic conflict, and we have gone through the entire background, and now we're at the point of how the believer is to resist Satan, how the believer is to avoid demon influence, and how the believer is to be... Uh, strengthened against any kind of demonic attack. We studied last time that there were five demonic assaults in history. One has to do with, two of them have to do with the church age believers specifically, and, uh, and that's demon possession, which is not a problem for church age believer. 
and demon influence, which is a problem for the church-age believer. But demon possession can be a problem for unbelievers, even in the church-age. But we are told exactly how to defend ourselves against the devil, and it is not by rebuking the devil. It's not by putting the devil in a headlock. It's not doing a body slam on the devil. I've seen preachers do those idiotic things on television. It is simply by resisting the devil. So this morning we're looking at what the Bible says about how to resist the devil. 1 Peter 5.9 says, But resist him firm in your faith. That is, firm in your doctrine. So resistance to the devil is related to application of doctrine in your soul. If there's little doctrine in your soul, you will be uh, hindered in your ability to resist the devil because there will be no application of doctrine. So the first, one of the first principles we note here is that to resist the devil, we must have doctrine in our soul and, being, and, and applying it. And part of that comes in the next phrase, knowing... Something, And when we see a phrase like this, with the uh, present active participle of gnosko, it emphasizes that the means to fulfilling the command is based on knowledge. This is a participle of means, but resist him, and it should be accurately translated, resist him, firm in your faith, by knowing, or it could possibly be a causal part, participle, which would be translated then as because you know something. But I think it's more means we resist him by knowing, by applying something that we know. That the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Now, Peter has a, as a major theme, major doctrine in First Peter, the subject of suffering and adversity in the believer's life. And that the believer often goes through undeserved suffering in this life. And so he he recognizes that in the midst of adversity, in the midst of suffering, there is a strong temptation to try to solve the problems on our own efforts and our own energy, to try to come up with some alternate way based on human viewpoint of solving problems, either through the various techniques of psychotherapy or counseling, rather than applying doctrine. If people would just apply the doctrine that's being taught, they could work through whatever problems they have. The thing that usually happens is people don't want to just apply doctrine. They don't want to spend the time learning the truth and just applying it and enduring in the midst of difficulty. And that's the whole theme we saw in our study of James, where James started off, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Because, and there you have the same kind of construction you have here, because you know something. You know that the testing of your doctrine produces endurance, and endurance will have its maturing result. So it's only through that process of applying doctrine and then enduring, hupomones, staying under the testing, staying in a difficult situation, staying in a position where you're constantly being pressured to escape the heartache, the trials, the difficulties, whatever it might be. Maybe it has to do with a marriage situation. Maybe it has to do with a work situation. Maybe it has to do with just a family situation. Now, there are certainly some family crises we can't escape. If you're having problems or difficulties with uh, parents as they 
grow older and having to deal with health problems and care problems and things like that, you can't escape that responsibility and run away from it because you're a child and there's a responsibility there to take care of older parents. If you have children that are rebellious, children that have decided to become negative to doctrine and negative to your authority as a parent, well, you can't absolve yourself of parental responsibility because they're still your child. Uh, we have to, in those cases, people just hang in there because they don't have any option, but usually they're not hanging in there with joy. And the joy comes because there is application of doctrine and an understanding of a divine viewpoint framework for, for suffering and for handling trials and difficulty. So Peter comes to this passage in verse 9 and says, Resist him because he recognizes the temptation ultimately comes from the cosmic system which is headed up by Satan. It doesn't mean that Satan's directly tapping on your shoulder, but that Satan has authored a system of thinking called cosmic thinking, which has a, a vast array of different means and methods for trying to solve problems in life apart from exclusive dependence upon God and application of doctrine. So he says you resist him, and you're able to because you know that the same experiences, you're not isolated. We know that Jesus Christ was tested in all areas. He didn't, may not have had the exact identical situation of any of us, but in every category of life's testings, Jesus Christ faced adversity and testing, yet without sin. Therefore, we know that there is a, we have a high priest who is not unaffected by our weaknesses or our infirmities. And in that same sense, Peter is saying that millions of other believers through history and at this time on the planet are going through the same kinds of situations, heartaches, difficulties, and problems that you may be going through, and they're not bailing out. So you shouldn't either. We should be encouraging one another because at one time or another we all go through similar uh, circumstances and those who have managed to go through those circumstances relying upon the Lord, trusting Him, even when everything looked hopeless, can be a tremendous source of encouragement for other believers. But the key is that we resist the devil. Now, First Peter 5, 8, the previous verse, he talks about the fact that the devil goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And that is that Satan continuously sets up traps for believers either through thinking or through some sort of demonic influence and the key is resistance and that is an important word. This is the same word that's used in James 4, 7. Submit therefore to God. That's the first step is humility. One of the major reasons most people have problems is because, especially if other people are involved, if you're going through some kind of people testing, where other people involved, maybe it's a, a spouse, maybe it's a co-worker, maybe it's a work, uh, an employer or an employee. If there's somebody else involved, then there's usually arrogance at some point. And whenever two people can't get along, usually one or both are operating in arrogance towards the Word of God, and they may claim to be applying the Scriptures, but they're not. They, they may have that super... I've, you see that all the time. And as a pastor, you often run into it because we tend to get involved in arrogance 
and in arrogance we get into self-justification and trying to justify our actions. And so there's nothing better than to be able to try to justify our actions by cloaking them in the veneer and language of Scripture. James 4, 7 says that the starting point for resisting the devil is, first of all, to submit to God. Hupotasso, which means to put yourself completely under the authority of God and to do exactly what God says to do as dictated through the commands of Scripture. So it begins with humility towards God, which starts, if you've been out of fellowship and incarnality, with 1 John 1, 9 and confession of sin. Now that we're back in fellowship, we stay in fellowship through abiding in Christ and remaining submissive to the commands of God by applying them. Submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And there's our same word again, resist, which is from the Greek word, anthistemi. And then the third, third, back up one, third verse that uses this same phraseology is in Ephesians 6.13, which is the passage, which is the passage that we'll look at today in 6.10 and following is therefore Ephesians 6.13, Therefore take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And there the phrase evil day is comparable to the experiences of suffering in 1 Peter 5.9. And that's the same context as James 4. See, all of these passages are talking about times when, as a believer, we go through the assaults of adversity. Adversity can come in many different shapes and forms. Adversity can come through meteorological disasters. There can be storms. It's interesting how relative disasters can be at some times. It seems like in the midst of the, all of the news coverage of the attack on the World Trade Center, Nobody paid any attention to the fact that a hurricane skipped across the skipped across Florida and flooded many homes and and people died. You know, it's interesting that um, so many uh, who suffered so much heartache during that one day and that one episode that so much news did not get covered. And of course, there's always folks who, as we studied in the first hour, who want to blame God or somehow blame God. How can a loving God let things like this happen? That you know, usually involves some loved one that was killed in that kind of attack. But if you think about it, I, I don't know what the exact statistics are, but I would imagine some 25, 30,000 or maybe more people died that day. Maybe 100,000 people in the country died that day. They died from leukemia. They died from cancer. They died in automobile accidents. They died from a heart attacks. They died from diabetes. They died because somebody murdered them, stabbed them, shot them. There were thousands and thousands of other people who died that day, and probably only a small percentage uh, were killed in the World Trade Center. Let's put some perspective on this in that way. That people of all ages, of all kinds, die every single day from reasons related to health, reasons some of them die young for unjustified reasons, or it seems the undeserved reasons. Others die when they're older. There is evil in the world And God allows evil to exist even though he is in control because to remove evil would be to remove um, human freedom and the volition of creatures. 
And evil happens not because God causes it to happen, not because God is the author of evil, but evil happens because creatures have been given free will and they choose to do evil. And when they choose to do evil, others suffer around them. They choose to try to handle life's problems apart from the principles of God's Word in rejection of the absolutes of God's Word. They choose some other system to solve it. And, of course, in the episode of two weeks ago, it's through religion. And we have religious fanatics who are seeking um, spiritual advancement through terrorism. And that is one of the greatest forms of evil in all of human history. So all of these passages that we look at that use this word resist, or the Greek word anthistemi, focus on a context of adversity. When we're faced with adversity, we have a volitional decision to make, either negative to God's word and try to handle it on our own, on our own resources, on some sort of human viewpoint technique, or we handle it on the basis of Bible doctrine and on the word of God. And so in the midst of that, we realize that ultimately all temptation flows either directly or indirectly from Satan, the fallen angels, the demons, and the world system which he authorizes. So these three verses together tell us that the key strategy for the believer in the angelic conflict towards uh, Satan and the demons is to resist the devil. The Greek words here are two. The root is histemi. Histemi, and that's the first word. And the second word, which is used in the three passages we just discussed, is anthistemi, which is formed by the uh, preposition anti plus the root verb histemi. And it means to stand firm, to stand against, and to take up a defensive posture against someone. It was used in military in a military sense to establish a defensive position and to stay behind it to withstand an assault. And that is the concept here. It is not an offensive concept in terms of battle. It is a defensive concept. And the best place, the longest explanation and exposition of this is given for us in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, where we read, Finally... And the finally relates to the fact that Paul is bringing the epistle to a conclusion. He's not talking about the last thing you do in the spiritual life. He's talking about that in terms of conclusion from this epistle, his last major admonition and exhortation to the Ephesian church is to be strong in the Lord and in the strength, literally it should be the power from Kratos, the power of his strength. And there the word translated might in the New American Standard is the Greek word eskuo. And the Greek word eskuo is the same word we will find in 1 John 2.14. I-S-C-H-U-O is the verb form, and it means to in the verb form to be strong. And see, John will use the noun form of that when he talks to the adolescent believers, the young men. He says, you are strong. And that means that they have learned 
to resist the devil. And that is why they are able to overcome the evil one in 1 John 2.14 because they have learned the technique in the church age spiritual life of how to resist the devil. So Ephesians Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His strength. It is God's strength, not our strength. What happens for in much spiritual warfare talk today is that people think that they can learn things about the devil and demons through experience. And so a lot of demonology and Satanology that's being taught today in many churches and from many pulpits is about 10% exegesis and about 90% experience. And see, the issue here is we're to be strong in the strength of His might, and that's going to involve really what the Bible talks about is defensive maneuvering. It's His power, not my power. It's, it's basing exclusively on the knowledge of Scripture and not on the basis of experience. Because if I can learn things, of, I can, you and I cannot learn anything from experience because there are two realms. There is a physical realm and there is a spiritual realm. Now, angels, demons, and Satan all operate in the spiritual realm. We operate in the physical realm. We do not have sensory capability in the spiritual realm. We can't see it. We can't feel it. We can't taste it. We can't touch it. We cannot know with certainty what's going on in the spiritual realm. We can only see certain effects in the physical realm. And some of those effects may derive from some sort of supernatural influence from demons or Satan. And on the other hand, they can also be the effect of simple sin nature control in somebody's soul. But see, sin nature control in somebody's soul is also not perceptible to our physical senses. So we're not smart enough. We don't have the capability to make a distinction between those things. All we can know for sure is from a study of God's Word is what the Scripture teaches And so exegesis must determine 100% of our understanding of what what happens in the demonic realm. We have to rely upon God to deal with everything because He knows what's going on. We have to rely upon Jesus Christ as our defense and Jesus Christ as our protector to take care of the situation. And we relax and trust Him. So we follow the principles of Scripture. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His strength. And then verse 11 states, Put on the full armor of God, so that you may be able to stand. And there we have the uh, aorist infinitive of histemi. That's our root word, which means to take a stand and hold it. It doesn't mean to assault. It means to take a stand. So it's not an offensive term. It is a defensive term. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The full armor of God in this sense is is a biblically inspired metaphor that is tantamount or comparable to the 
term, the, the model that we use of the spiritual fortress. When you're inside the spiritual fortress, you are using the divine problem-solving devices and therefore protected by God from any external assaults. You are protected because as long as you're applying the problem-solving devices in times of testing or temptation, you're not going to yield to the testing and temptation to solve your problems on your own efforts or your own energy. So here we're told that we're to put on the full armor of God so that we can resist, and that means to stand against the, um, stand against the enemy. And it emphasizes this uh, uh, defensive aspect. It's the same analogy that you would find, it would be used of a guard, that in the military a guard is assigned a guard post outside of the encampment. Now, that guard is given a mission to guard the camp. Now, if there is an enemy lurking out in the bushes ready to ambush him, he is not to leave his guard post. If he leaves the guard post and goes out to uh, run an individual patrol to see what's out there, then he leaves his post and opens the um, enclosure up to uh, assault from the enemy. So we take our stand and hold our position, and no matter what's going on, we don't leave our post by trying to offensively engage the enemy. As soon as we do that, we get in problems. There's a, a great illustration of this that I ran across years and years ago in my study of uh, American Western history that took place that is a perfect example of the problems you get into when you don't follow orders and you get involved in, in offensive action when you should be engaged in defensive action. Uh, in 1866, there was a famous massacre, which was overshadowed later on by Custer's Last Stand, but there was a famous massacre at the time called the Fetterman Massacre, which took place in the summer of 1866 at Fort Phil Kearney on the Bozeman Trail in Montana. At that time, the 2nd uh, Battalion of the 18th Infantry had been stationed there under the command of a Colonel Carrington. And the fort was located in this position, and it was located near a creek that came down from a, from a high valley up here. And so there was a range of mountains here and another uh, range of mountains or hills here, and these were heavily wooded. And about this, during this summer, the uh, Sioux Indians were involved with a uh, large offensive against uh, American settlers, especially those who were traveling along the Bozeman Trail. So the troops were sent to Fort, Fort uh, Phil Kearney in order to establish a defensive position along the Bozeman Trail. At this time, the Sioux War Chief Red Cloud had forged an alliance with various Sioux, Cheyenne, and Arapaho warriors in order to try to move the army out of the Powder River country. Now, the Indians were smart enough to know that they weren't going to be able to do anything in terms of an assault on the fort. So they had to lure the troops out of the fort when they would no longer be in a strong defensive position in order to destroy them. So one morning, a decoy party under the command of, at that time, the young uh, Chief Crazy Horse, the young Crazy Horse, attacked a logging party that was across the ridge line here. They were on the north side of the ridge. Here's the fort down here. So they were outside of eye contact and could not be observed by the 
by the fort. So they attacked this logging party up here, and the logging party retreated back to the fort. There was a young captain who was hot to go after the Indians and to rescue the work, work, uh, the work detail and punish the Indians, and this young captain's name was uh, William J. Fetterman. So he, met, he uh, was sent out from the fort by Colonel Carrington, and he was given orders just to come, up, come out here and meet the retreating wood-cutting detail and to escort them back into the fort. He was not to engage, he was specifically ordered, not to engage in offensive action against the enemy. But Fetterman was young and he was arrogant, and arrogance is always the key to defeat. And what happened is once Fetterman got his detail out here to protect the, uh, the woodcutters, as soon as he got them rescued so that they could re- return to the fort, he headed north after the Indians on the other side of the ridge. And the Indians under Crazy Horse set up a, an ambush where they had a group of Indians on, down in the valley who then faked a retreat from the, from the approaching uh, company under Fetterman and headed back into a series of woods on the other side of the valley. But Fetterman didn't realize that there, was, there were 1,500 Sioux Indians back in that wooded area. So he followed this uh, decoy detail back into, the, back into the trees where he was ambushed, and everybody was wiped out. He was outnumbered at least 18 to 1, and he, as he charged into that ambush, everyone in his command was wiped out. And see... There's a great analogy there because like Fetterman, believers are faced with the same kind of situation. We have an unseen enemy that is superior to us in numbers and crafty in strategy, and we don't know exactly where they are. We're told to stay in a fortified position and a defensive position and to obey the Lord. But what happens is... We get arrogant and think we can handle the situation, and so we leave the fort. But once we get outside the fort, we are exposed to the attack, and we are always going to be defeated spiritually once we get off of the defensive and onto the offensive. Now, as believers, we face three enemies, and they all interlink. There's Satan, there's the cosmic system, and the sin nature. The Satan and the cosmic system are outside of us. The sin nature is inside of us. The sin nature which is inside of us is the only enemy we are told to attack aggressively. We are to put to death the deeds of the sin nature. We are to be reckoning, which means to count or consider or think about the fact that that, uh, we are dead to sin because of our identification with Christ our positional identification with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, the, sin, the power of the sin nature has been broken. So the sin nature is the only enemy of the three that we are to aggressively attack. And when it comes to Satan and the world system, we are to resist. We are in a defensive position. A tremendous example of this from the Scriptures is found in Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14, we see the Jews as they are leaving Egypt at the Exodus. Exodus chapter 14, verses 13 through 14, and as they are 
departing from Egypt, they are met by an enemy. Exodus chapter 14, verses 13 through 14. On this point, they have defeated the Amalekites. The same principle was true with the Amalekites, but in this position, they have they have, are being pursued by the Egyptian army here in Exodus 14, and they are trapped up against the Red Sea. And as the Egyptian army is approaching and about to kill all of them and slaughter them all or take them back into slavery, Moses announces in verse 14, But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the deliverance or the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. And see, their command is the same. It's the Hebrew word that's translated in the Greek Septuagint as histemi. They are to stand. They're not to attack the Egyptians. They are to stand firm. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord. He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians who you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. For the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. And that is the issue in and when it comes to the believer dealing with the cosmic system and with Satan, we do not know where that enemy is. See, it's like with, with the Fetterman massacre. There's an enemy outside, out there, and we can't see them. They are invisible. Only God knows what their capabilities are. Only God knows what's going on there. And so we are to stay inside the fort. And then there is another assault force led by the Lord Jesus Christ, and the holy angels, and they are going to be assaulting whatever demonic forces are coming against us, and he's going to win the battle. We don't have to worry about it. We have to remember another important principle, that in any sort of combat situation, it doesn't matter whether you're being attacked by, let's use a military analogy, whether you're being attacked by the first company, second company, or third company. They each may have slightly different strategies, but the principles for defense are always the same. Now, what, what analogy am I using here? Well, the first company is the sin nature. The second company is the cosmic system. And the third company is Satan and the demons. But the principle for victory is always the same, and that is to positively apply Doctrine to every situation. It is not to go out and try. we don't even have to know the dynamics of the problem or who's against us. All we have to know is what God says to do. We don't have to identify demons. We don't have to decide where I'm in a position of, of testing or temptation. Is a demon behind it or is it the world system or just, is it just a problem of my own lust? It may be a combination of all three. We don't have to know the percentages. We don't have to know exactly who's assaulting us. All we have to know is the solution is to apply doctrine, casting all our cares upon Him because He cares for you, trusting exclusively on the Lord, walking by faith and not by sight, and that is how we maintain victory and stay in fellowship in the midst of trials, testing, and adversity. So the issue is standing firm and doing exactly what God has to say, and the principle is the same as in Exodus 14, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you 
and you keep silent. Don't get involved in trying to do the Lord's job and fighting the battle on your own. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Now we're told that we are to put on the full armor of God. There are two aspects to putting on the full armor of God. The first looks at putting on the full armor of God at one time. That is comparable to positional sanctification. That is our position in Christ. The initial command here is to put on the full armor of God. And then in verse 13, there is a shift to take up the full armor of God. And then it focuses on each individual piece. So we put on the full armor of God positionally at salvation. And then as we grow as believers and we begin to understand the divine assets that God has given us, then we take up each individual piece and put it on experientially in terms of applying doctrine. So there are two important truths here. One is the positional aspect that we have at the instant of salvation in Christ, and that means that we cannot be assaulted through uh, demon possession. And the second is experiential sanctification, when we learn the mechanics of the faith rest drill, we learn the implications of our positional righteousness, we learn what it means to utilize the Word of God in in, uh, a defensive manner, then we're able to apply those promises and principles experientially on a day-to-day basis. So verse 11 focuses on the positional aspect, and verse 13 and following focuses on the experiential aspect. This is analogous to what we have seen in our Old Testament studies in in, uh, Joshua and Judges, that the Israelites went into the land... And they conquered Jericho, and they conquered Ai, and then they went south, and they conquered the major Canaanite strongholds in the southern part of the land. They went north, and they conquered the major strongholds in the north, and then they had control of the land positionally. But they didn't have, they hadn't wiped out every Canaanite stronghold. They hadn't defeated every Canaanite. They hadn't annihilated every Canaanite. They still had those battles to fight. They still had to do all the mopping up operation. And that's the difference between positional control and experiential control. And, of course, in the study of Judges, we see that they failed experientially, and God left the enemies in the land in order to test them. That's the same reason we might say, God, if you saved me, why did you leave me with this rotten sin nature to keep having to struggle with it? And that's because learning how to deal with your sin nature is how you grow spiritually, not by giving in to your sin nature and saying, oh, I'll just go ahead and do that, and then God's going to forgive me. It's learning how to resist the sin nature. And we do that by learning the uh, doctrines that God has outlined in the New Testament for us and then applying them individually. So verse 13 then, we recognize in verse 12, our ultimate struggle is not against human beings, but it's against the demonic forces. And here they're listed in terms of their hierarchy. But the key principle for our application is started, it starts in verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist, and there's our word me again, resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm, and that's histemi. 
that we are able to stand histemi because we resist anthistemi. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. The picture here that Paul wrote Ephesians when he was in prison in Rome. And the picture is of the Roman soldier. Every day he was under house arrest and he's chained to a couple of Roman soldiers. So he's able to observe their weaponry. And he's talked to them about their training. He's uh, conversed with them about what it's like in the army, what it's like when they go into battle, what it's like when they go into bivouac at night. And what would take place is the Roman soldiers would stack their weapons outside of the tent. And then if they were attacked, everything had to be in the right place, in the right order. And when they were attacked, there would be a blast on the bugle and they would run out and they would immediately grab their, their weapons and their armor and begin to put it on. And so this is the picture of the believer going into battle at the point of any adversity and we're to take up the whole armor of God, not just a plot, not just one piece. There's an interlinking connection between all the parts of the armor. And we see that from the very beginning. We're to take up the full armor of God and that is how we resist, resist the devil at the time of temptation. Verse 14 says, stand firm. Notice, three times in a short section, uh, we have the, uh, either histemi or anthistemi. Stand firm, that's histemi, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. And it is a aorist participle indicating that you, you, you are able to stand firm because you have already done this. You have already girded yourself with the first uh, item, and that is the belt of truth. Now, for the Roman soldier, in terms of his whole outfit, the belt of truth is the most crucial piece of equipment because everything else, in some sense, connects or is stabilized by that belt of truth. Normally, a Roman soldier wore a long, free-flowing tunic, and this would obviously get in his way as he were going into battle. So he would strap a belt around his waist, and then pull the loose ends of the tunic through it in order to keep it out of his waist. So what's implicit here, standing firm there, having girded your loins with truth, means to remove the distractions in your life that keep you from focusing on Bible doctrine. It's, it's pulling up your skirts and getting them out of the way, pulling up your uh, whatever's in, hindering you, whatever gets in your way so that you can freely function in application of doctrine so that you can focus on the truth. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with the truth. Jesus uses the same phrase in Luke 12:35, where he says, Be dressed in readiness. Girding up your loins. The idea is that putting on the belt emphasizes readiness, preparation, watchfulness, and alertness, and emphasizes the believer who has made Bible doctrine the number one priority in his life, evaluated all the details in in his life, and removed the distractions that keep him from learning and applying doctrine. The same idea is emphasized in Hebrews 12.1, where we're told to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. So the belt of truth is used to remove the hindrances to our fight and prepares us for the battle. But I want you to notice that it is the belt of truth. Truth in this verse refers to the Word of God as objective truth. 
I want you to get that down because what we're going to come to as another piece of the armor is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But that is the Word of God, the rhema, which is the spoken word or applied word, and that's different from what we have here. Here we have the objective Word of God. It is the objective Word of God that is able to tell us what the distractions are in our life, what the sins are that easily entangle us, and it's by learning the objective Word of God that we're able to properly evaluate what's going on in our thinking and what's going on in our lives so that we can identify the distractions and focus on the real issues in the spiritual life. So the belt of truth here represents the Word of God as objective truth, not as applied truth, but as the uh, basis for all the other actions in the spiritual life. Remember, Jesus told the Pharisees, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free, in John 8.32. And then in John 17, when He is praying to the Father, He said, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. It is the objective Word of God that is the basis for our sanctification. And that means it's the basis for our spiritual growth and spiritual advance. The problem today is that often Christians are busy merging the truth of the Scriptures with other forms of truth, other claims of truth, and that always dilutes and destroys the pure divine viewpoint. We are to stick with the truth of Scripture and not look to other alternative systems of problem solving in order to make life work. So we are to stand firm by first having already girded our loins, removing distractions, girding our loins with truth, and second, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. No Roman soldier would go into battle without putting on his the breastplate. Now, Soldiers made their breastplates out of various materials. Some made them out of leather, some animal hoods, uh, sometimes shells. But commonly, it was a solid piece of metal which covered the front of the soldier's body from the base of his neck down to his lower torso. Thus, it protected all of his vital organs, including his heart and the bowels. And in the Scriptures, the heart and the bowels represents the thinking and the emotions, the immaterial, and the whole immaterial part of man. Proverbs 3 5 tells us to trust in the Lord with all our heart and to lean not on your own understanding. And then in Proverbs 4 23 we're warned, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. So this is what protects our heart, which is the core of our thinking, is the breastplate, which consists of righteousness. It is a an objective genitive. Now, the point of this, there's two aspects to this righteousness. First, there is the imputed aspect, which we receive at the point of salvation, and that has to do with positional truth. At the instant of salvation, we are imputed the perfect righteousness of Christ, and that is the basis of our standing before God. So that when Satan challenges us, as in Zechariah 3.1, where you have the picture of Satan challenging Joshua the high priest, it's Jesus Christ who says, I have removed his old garments and he's put on a white robe which signifies his positional righteousness. And that is the basis for our acceptance before God. So there is no basis for Satan to challenge us. But the second aspect of this righteousness is applied or experiential righteousness. 
This is what comes as a result of the believer learning and applying doctrine. So as we learn and apply doctrine, we advance in terms of experiential righteousness. Peter commanded in 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, You shall be holy, for I am holy. It is the factor of the believer living a life that is separated unto God. That's what holiness means. It means to be separated unto God, that we are separated from the cosmic system. We are going to remove the distractions in our life, and we are going to live a life focused on learning doctrine, growing spiritually so that we can glorify God. It's the same principle as James 4, 8, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, which has to do with with a confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9, and purify your hearts, that is your thinking, you double-minded. And that is for those who have one minute they're operating on divine viewpoint, the next minute they're operating on human viewpoint, and they've merged the two so that they're now sort of a... Uh, a psychotic believer who is fragmenting in his soul because he waffles back and forth between one minute it's doctrine and the next minute it's human viewpoint. So the key is cleansing in First John 1, 9 and then purifying our thinking, which is the result of learning doctrine and applying doctrine. Whenever we sin... In effect, it is like giving our loyalty and obedience to Satan. We are putting ourselves back under the mastery of the sin nature, which is warned against in Romans chapter 6. We are the slaves of whomever we obey, either the Lord for righteousness or the sin nature, which puts us into slavery, basically doing whatever Satan wants us to do. We are, as it were, putting ourselves back under the dominion of the kingdom of darkness. We're no longer walking in the light. Verse 15 says, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So now it looks on our foundation. Now anybody who runs, anybody who jogs, anybody who does aerobics, anybody who's in the infantry, anybody who's on their feet all day long working knows the importance of good shoes. Something gives your feet support and something that provides comfort and stability no matter what is going on. And the same was true of the soldiers in the uh, Roman army. They had developed sandals with uh, hobnails on the bottom. They provided them uh, with a solid support for their feet. They were comfortable, and it gave them stability in combat. And so what provides us stability and what provides us with our foundation is the gospel. because It's called the gospel of peace because we know that we are at peace with God. That because of justification and reconciliation, we are at peace with God, and sin is no longer the issue. One of the greatest ways that Satan attacks people is through guilt. Not real guilt, which is a recognition that I have indeed sinned, and therefore I need to confess my sin, but guilt feelings, emotional guilt. We, we, we confess our sins, but then we're so shocked by what we've done, we, we get involved in self-pity, and we don't think God can really forgive us, and how can God save me, and how can I ever do anything in the Christian life because I'm such a sinner? And that's guilt, and that's a, a failure to believe that we have peace with God. So the foundation of understanding the gospel, which understanding all the dynamics of the removal of the barrier, reconciliation, redemption, propitiation, all of these are necessary to understand. Once we understand them, then we can relax in God's provision and we have stability in the Christian life. Verse 16 says, In addition to all, 
taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. And the shield of faith here is a particular kind of shield. Roman soldiers had two different kinds of shield. There was a large oblong shield, which was almost like a door. It was um, four feet tall and two and a half feet wide, and it was called a thurios. It's not the smaller pelta, which was just a small round shield. And so when they were lined up together in, in ranks, they could get down behind these four feet tall, four foot tall shields, and they could hold them up. And when the enemy uh, had fired their arrow, their barrage of arrows at them, they could come together in their ranks and lock their shields together and pull them over them, and, and the whole unit would be protected from these this assault of uh, arrows, or in some cases, flaming arrows that were shot at the um, at the legion. So the shield of faith here is this large shield that protects, protects the Christian. It's called the shield of faith. That's doctrine. That's not just the use of faith or believing, but it is, it's what is believed. It's doctrine. It is the shield that is composed of doctrine because it is doctrine that we believe when you exercise a faith rest drill. You're mixing faith with the promise of God. You're mixing faith with the principle of God. You're mixing faith with a procedure that God has outlined in the Word of God. So faith not only means what the act of believing, but what is believed. We often use faith in that way. You talk about, well, what faith is that person? You know, what you're asking is what's their doctrinal persuasion? Are they Protestant, Catholic? Uh, what, what's their, what are their beliefs? So it is the shield of, of doctrine that protects us. So we're to take up the shield of doctrine, and it is on the application of doctrine that we can extinguish. I want you to notice the next word. It doesn't say to extinguish some of the flaming missiles of the evil one. It's all. That means no matter what you go through in life, everything is dealt with in the Word of God. This is the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. There's no problem, there's no difficulty that cannot be handled and faced by the application of doctrine. The problem is most people are too arrogant to really humble themselves under the mighty hand of God and apply doctrine. As a result of that, God makes war on the arrogant, and the result of that is increased instability and divine discipline. So we're to take up the shield of doctrine, and then in verse 17, the last two elements take up the helmet of salvation. The helmet protected the head, and it is salvation that protects the thinking of the believer. We understand the doctrines of salvation, and once you understand everything that God has done for us at the point of salvation, all the 39 things that are irrevocable, then we know that God, we can never lose our salvation and we are protected from any and every assault possible. We take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is not the objective truth as it sits in the Bible, but is the used or applied truth. It is the rhema of God, not the logos of God. Those are the two different words in Greek for word. Rhema means an applied or spoken word. And the best illustration of this is what Jesus does in the temptation in the wilderness in uh, Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus goes into the wilderness, Satan is misquoting Scripture, but every time Satan tempts uh, 
our Lord, he responds through accurately quoting and applying Scripture. He uses it not as an offensive. See, the Machaira sword here was the short, is the sword that's pictured here is the short sword of the Roman soldier. And it wasn't the long broadsword, which was much more of an offensive weapon. It, although you could use it off the, the short sword offensively, it was also used defensively in order to parry and to counterattack. And counterattack is also a defensive maneuver. And when you look at Jesus' interchange with Satan, the tempter, in, in his three temptations, he doesn't go after Satan. There's no offensive attack at Satan. Satan is the one who uh, attacks him, and Jesus just parries those assaults by quoting Scripture and correcting uh, Satan's misquote of Scripture and in the process applying doctrine. So he is using the word in purely a defensive manner. He does not aggressively go after Satan. Satan is not defeated until the cross. And Jesus handles the temptation there by simply uh, refuting whatever the temptation is by applying Scripture, mixing faith with Scripture. And then, verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times by means of, it's not in the Spirit, it's by means of the Spirit, and that means to be in fellowship and to be filled with the Spirit. And then B, the final statement, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for the saints. So the believer is to be on the alert, he's to be awake, he's to recognize what the problems are and what the assaults are, and recognize that there are going to be difficulties, trials, and testing, and he needs to persevere, that is hupomones again, to stand in the midst of the trial and continue to apply doctrine, even though it's difficult, and even though there may be various ways that you can avoid responsibilities or avoid difficult um, circumstances, Rather than apply the Scripture, the principle here is to apply the Scripture in order to be able to stand strong against the devil. Resisting the devil is a key, and it is not an aggressive action against the devil, but it is defensive based on learning doctrine and applying doctrine in every situation. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the clear teaching of your word that when we are involved with unseen uh, enemies, Satan and, and demons, we are not left unprotected. We are protected by the doctrines of Scripture. We are protected by you, and our, our responsibility is to stand firm by putting on the full armor that you have provided for us and not to attack. It is a defensive position, and we know that when we are doing what we are supposed to do by standing firm in a defensive position, then you will take the offensive and you will take care of whatever needs to be taken care of. And so we are simply to relax and rest and trust in you. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none who does good, no, not one. There is none righteous. Scripture says that Unless we are going to, if we are going to get to heaven, we must have a righteousness that exceeds the greatest righteousness of any human being. And that can only come by being given the righteousness of Christ, which is ours by faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's a simple matter of faith, so that right now, right where you sit, all you need to do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins. 
was buried and rose again on the third day. And at that instant of faith alone in Christ alone, you have eternal life that can never be taken away from you. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we have studied this morning, that we'd be comforted by their truth, and that we would be uh, willing to take up the challenge of applying your word in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.